verses 1 to 10. That's page 1172 of the Blue Church Bibles. Galatians chapter 6, beginning to read uh, uh, verse 1. Page 1172. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone, without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man who reaps what he sows, a man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please the, their flesh, from the fle their flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. Good evening, everybody. If um, you've not been with us as we go through Galatians so far, know that it's about freedom. Uh, we have been set free. The Lord Jesus Christ has taken every single chain to sin, death, and hell, and broken every single one of them. And if you have faith, then that freedom is yours. But last week we heard that Christian freedom is a bit different it's um, standing on a yacht without obligations, without schedule, without deadlines, but then it's choosing to sail back to port, handing your cold drink to the first needy person you see, selling the yacht and using the money to serve others. We read these words, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, rather serve one another humbly in love. And I said last week that while that might seem like an impossible command, we can do this with new motivation, with new power and new results. This week, we're continuing to work out what this freedom looks like. In religion, our moral life is defined by strict and clear boundaries. Religion keeps us like toddlers in a playpen. But in Christ, we're let out of the playpen. Our moral living isn't about rule-keeping anymore. It's about living in love and walking with the Spirit. So today, we're going to find out some more ways we can do that, some more ways that we can serve one another in love. Uh, we're also going to be armed with an additional motivation for our life of loving service. One of the key concepts this week is responsibility. Taking responsibility for ourselves and for other people. Um, I think I'm right in saying that in our country, 
Taking responsibility is a fading virtue. We're far more interested in talking about our rights. Our world thinks that we'll be free when everyone else pays attention to their responsibilities towards us. Um, However, Christian freedom actually flips that entirely the other way around. Reading through these verses is like a tightrope walk between our responsibilities towards other people on the one side and our responsibilities towards ourselves ourselves on the other. Um, By the end of this sermon, I'm hoping that we're going to at least attempt to explain and understand the relationship between those two things. But for the sake of clarity, what I'm going to do, rather than hopping between those extremes, is to first explain from these verses our responsibility towards others, and then we'll come back round to our responsibility individually towards ourselves. I'd say the message can be summarized in one sentence. Serve one another in love because we will reap what we sow. Serve one another in love because we will reap what we sow. Let's look at the first half of the sentence to begin with. We'll put it up on the screen. Emphasizing our responsibility towards others. In Galatians 6, 1 to 10, we're going to find four further ways we can serve one another in love. And the first one you can see up there in verse 1 is restoring. We serve one another in love by restoring. Verse 1, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Let's say that a Christian friend of yours has a problem with alcohol. It's not that you've caught them being drunk. Rather, alcohol has caught them. Um, Alcohol has caught them like a bear trap might trap someone's leg. Um, They are stuck in it. And we're talking far more than just enjoying one or two to the glory of God. Now, in a legalistic, religious community... um, of uh, kind of biting and devouring one another, like we heard about last week, Um, such a person is going to be called out and kicked out, aren't they? However, in a church characterized by the Spirit, characterized by freedom, you're going to restore that person gently. You're going to lovingly challenge them, saying something like this, Mate, I'm worried for you. This isn't me saying I'm better than you but it seems like you're struggling with this. And as people who follow Christ, that's a chain that we shouldn't be wearing anymore. Together, the two of you might work on accountability. You might put helpful boundaries in place. You um, might seek professional help. We shouldn't ignore steps like that. Those things are going to be helpful as long as, as long as you don't rely on things like that. Because Galatians 5 told us the things we need to rely on in order to resist the influence of the flesh. Our new motivation is love, and our new power is the Spirit. So the real route to restoration will be helping that person recognize the impact of their sin on those they love. The real impact to restoration for that person will be encouraging them to walk by the Spirit 
through prayer and Bible reading. Other things, helpful. Those two things, absolutely essential. Though That's what we need to rely on. Beyond this specific example, it's true that occasionally biblical teaching demands that for certain unrepentant sins, a person is put out of the church. Uh, Primarily, this involves division, sexual immorality, or heresy. And um, afterwards, you can read about this in 1 Corinthians 5. However, there is so much restoring work that goes on before you get to that point. And even if a final point of separation does occur, it's with the aim that the power of sinful flesh will be destroyed in them and that their spirit would be saved when the Lord returns. Sometimes returning to the same congregation is not always wise or possible, but the aim is always to restore Those um, serious examples aside where the whole church is involved, 99% of restoring is the work of Christian friends acting in love towards one another. It doesn't have to be a big deal. It's normal and healthy, isn't it, to want each other to do better. That's a loving thing to do. We are free from the kind of judgmental biting and devouring of religion. We serve one another in love by restoring. Carrying. Put the next one up there. We serve one another in love by carrying. Let's read verse 2. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. As each one of us came into the church building today, we were all carrying a suitcase. Now, some people pull their uh, carry-on on wheels, And um, they manoeuvre around everyone quite easily. It's not causing too much bother at the moment. Others are laden by heavier, bulky baggage that they could barely fit into the row, and so they can't even sit comfortably. They can't concentrate on the message at all. And still others have such burdens that they weren't even able to come this evening. Now, I understand you might think, really? Looking around, everyone seems fine. But though we can't see it, every single one of us is carrying something, and I include myself in that as well. Understand that people might just be keeping their baggage quiet. They don't want to be a burden to others. But I do want to say that if that's you, please speak up. Um, Please don't deny us the opportunity to be who we are in Christ. I think the ideal is to be a little bit of a burden to the church all the time so that uh, we can prevent things from becoming a massive burden eventually. Um, Share the little burden before it turns into a mountain is what I'm trying to say. This church is meant to be a place where we all help one another carry each other's suitcases. Um, Some people's baggage will be that they're caught in sin, just like verse 1, but verse 2 is bigger than that as well. Other people will have suitcases full of of sorrows, suitcases full of cares and struggles. There are some people in this church who do a beautiful job of carrying uh, the burdens of others. Um, Well done uh, for you, uh, to you who do that. I think there's growth for, for the rest of us. How about this for a question that we can ask one another? Is there anything I can help you carry? 
is there anything I can help you carry? You may like to try that question out at some, some point over the next few weeks. By doing this, we fulfill the law of Christ, verse 2 says. And as I said last week, that law is love. Love God, love neighbor as yourself. We serve one another in love by carrying. Sharing. We'll put that one up there as well. We serve one another in love by sharing. And now we're jumping forward to verse 6. Don't worry, we'll come back to the rest later. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Here's a scenario where we're finding someone who's being taught the message of the gospel. And the command to them is to share all good things. And just to clarify, that doesn't mean that the pupil is supposed to um, tell their teacher some good spiritual truths once the lesson is over. Um, That's not what it means here. Rather, all good things refers to material support. Um, Those who are taught have a responsibility to be generous towards teachers of the word. So all good things might include a salary, it might include accommodation, it might include inviting someone round for a meal. It's important we remember one fact. This letter is addressed to local churches. So this has no relevance to people you meet on the street. This has no relevance to teachers you listen to on YouTube. Please don't let people con you out of your money. This is about learners and teachers of the word in churches. And note that the word is share. This implies some kind of level playing field. So here is absolutely no justification to be buying private jets for your pastors. Um, That's really not what you ought to be doing. But conversely, it does mean ensuring that they have a similar standard of living to other people in the congregation. It's about this point I should probably declare a conflict of interest. Um, I'm someone who's provided for by this church, but I won't shy away from the fact that Giving is an important way Christians express our freedom and love. A couple of days ago, I heard about a pastor's wife from another church asking for advice in a really awful financial situation. Um, This pastor's wife um, and her husband, they'd maxed out all their credit cards, simply trying to keep their family fed and clothed and housed. Shocking. That church clearly hasn't read Galatians 6. And I'm super grateful that this church is nothing like that. Um, To those of you who give so sacrificially, thank you. Thank you for giving. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for your hospitality. I hope that I and the other teachers of the word here can serve you in return by faithfully and diligently teaching the word. We serve one another in love by sharing. And fourthly, doing good. We serve one another in love by doing good. So far, the one another's have all referred to believers, people in the family of God. But verse 10, if we look down at it, is broader, isn't it? Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Remember that we're still uh, still, um, fulfilling the law of Christ. We're still obeying his reframing of the Old Testament law, love your neighbor as yourself. So 
let's be really careful that we're not walking down the well-trodden, erroneous detour of putting limits on the definition of who our neighbor is. Who is my neighbor? Um, The uh, good Samaritan gives us a sanctified slap over the back of our heads. Wrong question. Are you being a good neighbor? That's the right question, even to the most unlikely person. It would seem that the early church took these words to heart. In the early second century, there was a Greek philosopher whose name I can't pronounce, uh, Aristides. Uh, He walked into a church gathering, and after observing them, he wrote down a letter to the Roman emperor talking about the conduct of Christians. This is what he wrote. They abstain from all impurity in the hope of of the recompense that is to come in another world. As for their servants or handmaids or children, they persuade them to become Christians by the love they have for them. And when they become so, they call them, without distinction, brothers. They do not worship strange gods, and they walk in all humility and kindness. And falsehood is not found among them, and they love one another. When they see the stranger, they bring him to their homes and rejoice over him as over a true brother. And if there is among them a man that is poor and needy, and if they have not an abundance of necessities, they fast two or three days that they may supply the needy with necessary food. They observe scrupulously the commandment of their Messiah. They live honestly and soberly as the Lord their God commanded them. Such is the conduct and law of Christians. I'd love that to be the testimony of uh, people that walk in here. Not just a message that they heard, but a message that they saw. A message that they saw lived. Us doing good, not just speaking the truth. Um, Yes, our greatest obligation is to the family of believers, but we can't limit our definition of neighbor. So we, um, we serve one another in love by restoring, carrying, sharing, and doing good. But why? I said last week that our motivation is love, and yes, that is primary. But we've also got another motivation in these verses. Here we're thinking about the other side of the balancing act. We've considered our responsibility to others. Now we're thinking about our responsibility as individuals towards ourselves. Watch out. Watch out. After, taking, after talking about restoring others in sin, verse 1 says, but watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. This could mean that um, when walking alongside someone who's struggling with anger, watch out, because you yourself might be tempted by anger. It could mean that. But because of what's written in verse 3 and 4, I think there's a better option. It almost certainly means something else. Here's the more accurate alternative. When walking alongside someone struggling with anger, watch out, or you might be tempted by self-righteous comparison. You're not persuaded yet, um, so look down at verse 3 and 4. They continue to give warning and instruction for brothers and sisters as they restore sinners and carry burdens. 
Paul hasn't suddenly changed the subject. And there's a particular temptation when a friend has admitted sin to us. It goes like this. Well, I'm not struggling with that, so I must really be something. I must be doing all right. It sounds awfully like the Pharisee's prayer that we heard last Sunday morning. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. If we play the comparison game, it's easy to find reasons to think that we're somebody, i.e. verse 3. If we play the comparison game, it's easy to find reasons to be proud, i.e. verse 4. Yes, we have a responsibility to restore others, but when it comes to sin, our responsibility towards ourselves is greater. Notice that we're not commanded to watch others. We're not commanded to test the actions of others. But we are commanded to watch ourselves. We are commanded to test our own actions. Um, Let's try this. Everybody... um, Get your pointing fingers out and point to someone around you. You have one finger pointed at that person, but also notice you have three fingers pointed straight back at you. Three of your own fingers, let alone the other ones that are pointing at you. There's a truth to that, isn't there? Watch yourself. Um, Oh, we can click on one, uh, one slide as well, thank you. And verse 5 gives us the reason to be wary of the temptation to self-righteous comparison. For each one will carry their own load. Um, You won't see the future tense in your NIV Bibles if you've got them open. But it's there and it's important. Don't play the comparison game because you will carry your own load. As with last week, Paul is using the future tense because he's thinking about judgment day. In the here and now, we carry one another's burdens. But on that day, each one of us will carry our burden alone. What this means is that God doesn't grade on a curve. Now, imagine that you have 100 students. If you're grading them on a curve, then whatever happens, 20 of them are going to get an A, 20 of them are going to get a B, 20 of them are going to get a C, 20 of them are going to get a D, and 20 of them are going to become church ministers. I'm sorry, that's a bad joke. Um, That's awful. Um, In this method, your grade depends on what other people get. Regardless of how well you do in the test, as long as you do better than most others, you're doing all right. But it will not work like that on Judgment Day. You're not going to be judged in comparison to your friends, your classmates, your family, fellow churchgoers. It doesn't matter one bit if you're slightly less of a sinner than the person sitting next to you. Each one of us will carry our own load. You don't get to blame anyone else. You don't get to rely on anyone else. So look to your own sins before you look to the sins of others. And now that leads to a very sober warning in verse 7. You reap what you sow. It starts actually, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. 
That's not a teaching point on its own. Um, rather, it's a setup for what follows. I'd paraphrase it something like this. Don't kid yourselves. God is about to say something that you really have to take seriously and you can't laugh about. Here's the message from God that we must take so seriously. A man reaps what he sows. That's been a universal truth throughout the history of humanity. Until comparatively recently, all of us would have been coming in here with dirt under our fingernails. The statement would be an absolute proved experience of all of us because we'd be growing our own food. Tim Keller says this well. Whatever you sow, you will reap. If you plant tomato seeds, you're not going to get cucumbers. Whatever you sow, you will reap. And whatever you sow, you will reap. The seed may lie dormant in the ground for a really long time, but eventually it will come up. Verse 8 gives us two farming certainties. First, whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. The flesh is humanity in opposition to God. We've already been told what it desires. Just look at the list back in chapter 5. If you're planting those seeds, you will reap a harvest of destruction. The moral fabric of this universe demands that it's often our experience in the here and now. Common phrases we have like live by the sword, die by the sword express something of that reality. If you're currently planting seeds of lust, of anger, or of drunkenness, they might lie dormant for a long time, for years. But don't think for a moment that you can go along sowing evil without reaping its crop. You might not see the consequences yet, but be sure that on judgment day, a terrible harvest is coming. And in the end, it will mean your own destruction. God's making a new creation that's perfect. So all ungodliness, all ungodly people have to be destroyed. You may not like this doctrine, but that doesn't make it untrue. So let us all test our actions. What am I sowing? What future am I planting for myself? Here's the other farming certainty from verse 8. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Just as we already know what the flesh desires, so last week we learned what the Spirit desires. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what pleases the Spirit. If we keep sowing, or as verse 9 says, if we keep doing good, then we will reap a harvest of eternal life. Now, whose heresy alarm just went off? I think I could hear one. It sounds like God is saying, do good to earn eternal life. And it's really vital that we understand God's true intention here, because that is not the case. Throughout this letter, Paul has been saying that it's crazy 
to start by faith and finish by good works. We should never try to add anything, uh, any of our own efforts to the gospel. Faith in Christ is all that we need to be part of the family of God. So, like, he's not suddenly going to change his mind at the very end of the letter if he's been saying that all along. However, Paul has also said in chapter 5, verse 6, the only thing that counts is faith. It's expressing itself through love. Faith expressing itself through love. We are saved through faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Genuine faith always shows itself. So, love, joy, peace, restoring, carrying, sharing, doing good, these are not necessary conditions of being part of God's family. They're not. But they are necessary evidence of being part of God's family. They are expressions of faith and fruit of the Spirit. God hates good works that are motivated by a desire to earn our salvation. But he loves good works that are the result of faith and the work of his Spirit. So read verse 9, bearing this in mind. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Believer, don't give up planting those seeds because it will be worth it. Each small, imperfect act of loving service will grow. These are expressions of faith. These are fruit of the Spirit. And on judgment day, no one will be able to say, you don't belong to God's family. Because the evidence will be clear for all to see. Yes, you've got a long list of sins. I've got a long list of sins. But these acts of loving service will have no other explanation. This sinner can only have done this by the Spirit and through faith. They must be a child of God. And as his child, you will reap eternal life. Let me underline this. Your right standing before God is entirely because of your faith in Christ. End of conversation. Your welcome into heaven is only earned by the righteousness of Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. End of conversation. Different conversation. Your faith in Christ will and must result in doing good. Harvest time is coming. It's inevitable. It will be a time where every man and every woman reaps what they sow. So we all need to be planting well now. Those of us here who haven't put our faith in Jesus Christ yet, the solution isn't to do better at restoring, carrying, sharing, and doing good. Um, please bear with me for putting this bluntly. That's like sellotaping fruit to a dead tree. You get ready for harvest by putting your faith in Jesus for the first time. He will then send his Holy Spirit into your heart, giving you new life and new fruit. Come to Jesus for new life in the Spirit. 
those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, we too must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's a direct quote from 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. So use the coming harvest as extra motivation for your loving service. Use that coming harvest to keep you going. We should take responsibility for one another now because we will take responsibility for ourselves alone in the future. We should carry one another's burdens now because one day we will carry that, our burden alone. Your daily sowing of good deeds is not vain. They will not earn your salvation. They could never do that, and Jesus has already done that for you. However small they might seem, though, they are beautiful evidences of your salvation. They are so, so valuable. I recognize that talking about reaping what we sow can be unsettling. But this is yet another wonderful work of God's grace. Like a child, we offer a, a random scribble of crayon on card. Um, our father can just about tell what it's meant to be, but let's be honest, it's a little bit rubbish. However, it still ends up on the fridge because he's your father and you are his child. Let's pray. Father, thank you that in Christ you have set us free. And thank you that you have given us everything we need in order to live a life that pleases you. Please help us to use our freedom to serve one another here and outside this building, humbly in love. Father, in light of this sober warning in this passage, Please convict us where we are falling short. Please give us a certain expectation that this day of judgment is coming, that we will reap what we sow. Father, if anyone here is not yet ready for that day, please put your hand on them right now. May they come to Jesus in saving faith. And for all of us, May we see this week those expressions of faith and that fruit of the Spirit. May it encourage us so much as evidence that we are your children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The musicians are going to come up to the front. And um, in light of that sober warning, we're going to sing of the Day of Judgment. It's not a necessarily a rejoicing song but it is an important song as we think about what we've heard the musicians will lead us and we'll stand to sing but if you just want to listen for a verse and then pick up pick it up later on uh, i'm sure you'll you'll find that easy enough